A number of current major cooperative group trials are evaluating new approaches to the management of patients with DCIS, and I met with Dr. Henry Kerr to learn about a fascinating new approach to this being studied at MD Anderson Cancer Center and other institutions as described by Dr. Kerr. DCIS may be the optimal chance for us to study preventive agents. And one thing that we've hooked onto at MD Anderson right now is the use of Herceptin with DCIS. Because about 60% of DCIS, at least high-grade DCIS, will have amplification of HER2 new gene. So our hypothesis is that we can pretreat patients with that drug and potentially show that it may be actually very effective with apoptosis and cell death. Now, why we might want to use that particular molecule is because we know it's very effective, at least in invasive carcinoma that's overexpression of HER2. We're doing a pilot study at MD Anderson. Women are eligible to participate whether they choose mastectomy or more segmental resection. And we are looking at biomarker expression at the beginning and after treatment with Herceptin, that is, at apoptosis rates and potentially even pathologic response of the DCIS to this drug. So who's eligible for the study? Any patient who has overexpressing her 2 new DCIS, pre- or postmenopausal woman. So the idea is they get the trastuzumab before they get their surgical treatment? Right, in the neodrine setting to see if there is even an effect with that drug on overexpressing DCIS. Certainly we do a lot of surgery and give a lot of radiation for DCIS, and sometimes it's very radical as you well know, that in this country we're still performing mastectomy for DCIS. It's a very good treatment. It eradicates it, but I think we need to look at biologic agents that may also have potential impact in preventing invasive carcinoma, because ultimately that's what we're doing. It's prevention of invasive carcinoma. I had heard some discussion, I think, within the NSABP of maybe looking at trastuzumab in terms of potentiating radiation therapy in DCIS. That's in the works right now. Melody Coblay from Chicago is the principal investigator on that study. And she has the study as a randomized two-arm study. What's interesting is that patients will be eligible for this study if they have overexpression of HER2, but it allows premenopausal and postmenopausal women to participate. So right now we don't have any effective systemic therapies that we know of for ER-negative DCIS. Her study is a randomization between standard whole breast radiation following lumpectomy with negative margins in her two new overexpressing breast carcinoma versus Herceptin given concurrently at week one and at week three of radiation. So I think based on the half-life of Herceptin, it's felt that that would be an effective dose. Another strategy in DCIS systemically is hormone therapy, and the NSABP is comparing tamoxifen to anastrozole in the B35 study in DCIS patients with hormone receptor-positive tumors. What are your thoughts about that trial? It's a very good trial. The impact will probably be on ER-positive invasive carcinoma. I'm curious what your perspective is in terms of the toxicity profiles of those two approaches in postmenopausal women, tamoxifen versus aromatase inhibitor. Of course, that relates to invasive disease and also future trials in the preventive setting. Yeah, we did a study at MD Anderson looking at our experience with how often are we actually offering patients tamoxifen in 
patients with DCIS. And we looked at our experience after 1999 when the NSABP B24 study was published showing that there was a decrease in recurrences in contralateral breast cancer in women taking tamoxifen, particularly in those women who are ER positive. And essentially, only 60% of us were really offering the patients. And in fact, only 50% of the patients agreed to take the drug. And of those, 20% women, at least in the first year follow-up at 12 months, had discontinued therapy because their perceived negative side effects. My take, and that certainly seems to be the clinical impression that people haven't sort of jumped that hard on the bandwagon of tamoxifen for DCIS. And it seems like there's a lot of concern about side effects, endometrial cancer, deep vein thrombosis, et cetera. If the aromatase inhibitors turn out to have a similar or greater efficacy benefit, how do you think the toxicity profile will compare with tamoxifen? From what I know so far, I think the toxicity profile is going to be much better with the aromatase inhibitors. It doesn't even have to be better. It just has to be as good to eliminate some of the side effects, potentially lethal side effects with tamoxifen. Although small, it's something that women really get concerned about when discussing their treatment options. When you've talked to patients with DCIS, what are the greatest concerns they have about tamoxifen? In premenopausal women, they're very concerned about, obviously the younger women don't like the idea of not being able to get pregnant while on the therapy. I know that's controversial, pregnancy following treatment for invasive carcinoma. Women are scared of when they get a diagnosis of cancer and you tell them they may have a risk of 1 in 2,000 to 3,000 of having a uterine carcinoma, that kind of frightens them as well. Then there are some things out there that women are afraid with tamoxifen, you know, of the vasomotor symptoms associated with estrogen deprivation. I'm curious what your take was on the issue of ER testing and DCIS that was first presented by Craig Allred at the San Antonio meeting a couple years ago. I think it makes sense that DCIS that has estrogen expression is going to have an effect using tamoxifen. But many of us in the community would really like to see this published. It's one of the very few studies that has been presented in abstract form. At least in the United States, it's changed our standard therapy of only offering patients tamoxifen in the setting of DCIS with positive estrogen receptors. It's very intuitive that it would work, but I really would like to see the data. One of the things that kind of bothered me about that, and I've interviewed Craig for this series, is that while he found that when he tested tumors and found them to be ER negative, they did not respond or benefit by tamoxifen, the tumors that were tested in the community, actually the ER negative tumors did benefit because there were so many false positives. What are your thoughts about that? I think it's something that is a big concern, that is testing and whether or not we're really identifying the right patients to treat. The same thing happens with HER2 testing, and that's been published quite a bit. The issue of HER2 testing now is very much on the table with the adjuvant trastuzumab studies being very positive. I'm curious, first, what your thoughts are about those data. It's very exciting data. Of course, we wish it was available to all women with invasive carcinoma. We're talking about a small subset, maybe 20 to 30 percent of patients. However, it's apparent that those are the bad players. Not to mix apples and oranges, but the question might be, is the HER2 positive DCIS ER negative the same players that go on to invasive carcinoma? That's why I'm so interested in the DCIS stage. Can we actually intervene 
at that point to prevent actually even needing that type of therapy later on. So I think that's something that I think you're going to be hearing a lot more about, that is this potential of treating the DCIS to prevent the bad players with invasive carcinoma. To me, it seems like I'm a surgeon. I want my patient to go see the medical oncologist for a post-op visit to consider adjuvant therapy with as accurate as possible ER testing and HER2 testing at this point in time. What's the best way to sort of assure that, or how do you approach that? Well, in general, unless we know the laboratory which is being tested, we will repeat everything at MD Anderson, that is ER, HER2 prior to the patient seeing the medical oncologist. And there's discrepancy in about 20% of the patients. So we feel comfortable with just repeating it. You practice in whatever environment you're in, and you, of course, have to trust your labs, but you have to have a lab that has a lot of experience with the right positive and negative controls, and actually you have to demand that for your patients. You know, my take on this is that maybe one of the ways to try to figure out whether the lab that you're working with on a regular basis as appropriate as volume of testing, sort of as a first gross cut. Is that the way you see it? Yeah, I think that's a good way to approach it. I think the NSABP kind of found that the labs doing the greatest volume had the greatest accuracy. Definitely. What are some of the common questions that you receive from surgeons in practice about DCIS? Of course, there's always the issue of margins, issues of sentinel nodes. Can you comment on some of those common questions? One controversial area that keeps coming up almost constantly, is all patients actually need radiation following segmental resection with negative margins. Of course, we have data now from very large studies where we have those patients who are randomized to receive radiation. There's, you know, an absolute benefit of about 10% at 10 years. That is, we'll see recurrences in those patients who weren't treated in about 10%, those without the radiation. Of the RTOG, of course, has their randomized study for very small, that is less than two and a half centimeter DCIS, that has intermediate or low grade following surgical resection with negative margins. And I think that study's recruited about 900 or so patients. And I think it's important that we continue that study and that the surgeons in the community enroll. I think the patients are interested in participating. I think we can identify a group of patients whom there is a very low risk. They're probably going to be, obviously, like the invasive carcinoma, they're probably going to be older patients with intermediate and low-grade tumors. But I think we really need to do those studies here in the United States as well in a randomized manner. In your own practice outside of protocol setting, are there patients that you don't recommend radiation for? In general, we would not recommend radiation for those very, very small DCIS cases, less than a half a centimeter with very wide margins. However, these decisions are made in a multidisciplinary collaborative way. And even if I decide based on data that this probably isn't needed, I would prefer my patient to speak to the radiation oncologist to get a global perspective on actually her absolute risk and benefit of the therapy. One thing in the surgical community, which is quite a hot area of interest as well as studies, is the use of partial breast radiation. We have a study at MD Anderson, multi-center study, that we're participating in looking at the treatment of DCIS with the mammocyte brachytherapy catheter. At first, I was really concerned that patients with DCIS may not be the optimal patients to receive partial breast radiation, but speaking to 
leaders in pathology, it turns out that DCIS is really a disease that is much less likely to be multifocal and multicentric than invasive carcinoma with or without DCIS. So this is a phase two study. These results probably will come out several years sooner than the randomized trial by the NSABP, which is a randomized study of partial breast radiation for women with DCIS or small invasive carcinoma. Partial breast radiation is given with the mammocyte catheter or three-dimensional conformal radiation. And with that study, I think as people are beginning to use these different techniques, we're really going to need the final analysis on how these patients are going to do, but it's going to be a long time, probably 10 years from now until we start getting any meaningful data. I think also the NSABP allows brachytherapy as a third. Absolutely. What's your take in terms of those three methods, in terms of efficacy, patient acceptability, and how do you incorporate that into your practice outside of protocol setting? Currently, we do not treat with partial breast radiation MD Anderson outside of a protocol. We have the NSABP RTOG randomized study as well as the single arm phase two with the mammocyte. It's interesting, so far, of the patients enrolled in the NSABP study, most of the patients and the radiation oncologists are choosing the three-dimensional conformal technique. Something like 60 to 70 percent of patients are getting the 3D conformal. There are technical issues which the radiation oncologists point out to me that make one or the other better option for the patient. I think from a patient perspective, almost all of us would agree that we would rather not walk around with catheters in our bodies hanging out for, you know, five to ten days. Actually, they would rather go in and just have the radiation treatment twice a day without having to care for that catheter. But the patients are very interested in this, and they're very interested to know about the biologic rationale for it. They'd often ask, well, why is my whole breast being treated? And it's a good question. So I assume in general those patients who've put on that study are getting 3D conformal. What kinds of patients with the radiation oncologist more likely use the mammocyte? I can tell you the reverse. For those patients where I don't have a good greater than one centimeter or seven millimeters to one centimeter breast tissue beneath the skin, those are not optimal. What are some of the other areas of your own research interests? Well, at MD Anderson, we're really very interested on the surgical implications of neoadjuvant therapy. How do you integrate sentinel node into the neoadjuvant setting? That's been a very controversial area in the surgical community. I must say that first, often I was really committed to telling my colleagues I think that they should really wait till after the chemotherapy. But it really depends on your practice environment. If you happen to be in an environment where your radiation oncologist prefer to treat young women with node-positive disease with post-mastectomy radiation based on one or two nodes, then that's important information for their system to know that. At MD Anderson, we have the luxury of having ultrasound of the nodes done prior to surgery or chemotherapy, so we get a good idea, at least the positive ones, we can do FNA and find out in that method. But my personal take on is that we're really more interested in what's in the nodes following the chemotherapy. In those patients, it remains independent prognostic factor. And in fact, that's how we generally operate at MD Anderson. We found that there's a false negative rate of maybe about 9% to 12%. And this parallels actually what's been found by the NSABP B27 
Terry Mamounis recently published their experience in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, showing, in fact, again, a false negative rate in the range of 8 to 12 percent, which is really very similar to our experiences in the adjuvant setting as well. But I think it's important for the surgeon to do what their team is comfortable with. That is, multidisciplinary team, the radiation oncologist or your medical oncologist believe that they're going to change their decision-making based on a sentinel lymph node biopsy prior to any therapy, then I believe that there's nothing wrong with that. I think it saves a patient operation, and we're comfortable with it at MD Anderson. When a patient asks you what the chance is of having a you know, false negative sentinel node biopsy in your hands, how do you answer? I actually go over the data with them often, showing them there are several studies now. I think we're in the range of published studies, maybe in the 1,200 to 1,500 range. Again, the smaller the studies have lower false negative rates. The larger studies show higher false negative rates. We've just performed a meta-analysis of all these studies, and essentially we're dealing with the 8% range. So that's very similar to what we see in the adjuvant setting as well. In terms of the overall use of sentinel node biopsy, what are your thoughts about seeing you know, an 8 or 10% false negative rate in terms of clinical implications? The actual number of patients where, in fact, it may change their systemic therapy is probably small. That is, patients with greater than one centimeter tumors, at least at MD Anderson, will be offered systemic therapy, be it endocrine therapy or chemotherapy. But you have to remember the false negative rate of our standard technique using X-ray lymph node dissection, we're probably at the 10% rate. How do I say that? It's all in the pathology, the processing. The pathologist will go step sectioning through a lymph node. They're looking more carefully. If they do in a standard X-ray lymph node dissection, they're looking at one, maximum two sections. So if we go back to those lymph nodes later on, we're going to see upstaging in probably 10% of those patients as it is. So I think sentinel lymph node biopsy clearly has less morbidity with respect to ability to go back to work, the patient's pain and lymphedema rates. So I think we're pretty much in a better situation overall with the patients who are getting the sentinel lymph node over the axial lymph node dissection. In Europe, there's been a lot of treatment of postmenopausal women with ER-positive disease in the neoadjuvant setting with endocrine therapy. And there was a very good study published maybe four or five years ago looking at postmenopausal women who had very large primary tumors that were ER-positive and, in fact, were ineligible for breast-conserving surgery. So that was with the eligibility criteria for those patients. And, in fact, it was a randomized study of tamoxifen versus letrozole in those patients. And it just never really made it to the surgical community. But 45% of the patients were converted from needing a mastectomy to being able to undergo a safe breast-conserving surgery procedure. So it's something that we as surgeons really don't have that much experience with. This was an international study, but it's remarkable because it's a higher conversion rate than we see with unselected patients who are seeing neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And there are many patients in our country who really are not interested in taking systemic chemotherapy. And it's something that I think we need to think about as surgeons. And for us to get more experience with this, the American College of Surgeons Oncology Group is just opening up a trial now. Matt Ellis and John Olson are the PIs on this study. And essentially, it's a three-arm study of approximately 300 patients postmenopausal, all of which ER positive, who are going to be receiving aromatase 
therapy upfront, randomized manner of our three agents, current agents, letrozole, anastrozole, exemestine. And of course, we're hoping that we'll be able to convert several of these patients from needing a mastectomy, but it's going to give the surgeon experience on how to follow these patients. That is, initial examinations, follow-up, utilizing ultrasound and mammography, marking the area where the tumor is so that we'll know where to resect with percutaneously placed clips. And of course, it has some very exciting biocorrelative studies looking at some of the factors associated with endocrine resistance and response to therapy in this group of patients. You mentioned the study looking at letrozole. I think there also was a study, the impact study, looking at anastrozole, which found the same thing in terms of decreasing the need for a mastectomy. Is that part of the entry criteria or the endpoints of the American College trial? The American College of Surgeons Oncology Group trial, you don't need to have to have the need for mastectomy, but generally it's for large primary invasive carcinoma, ER positive in women who are postmenopausal.